0: Don't miss out on all the extra content I'm sharing. I can't wait to see you over there.
1: This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love.
0: For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to
2: 25%
0: off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com weightloss weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss.
2: The grooming and the manipulation, the lies started straight away telling me that this is what my parents wanted, that my parents hate me, that he loves me, that I love him. He told me that I picked him up at the pool. I was staring at him at the pool. If I say anything, I'll go to jail and he'll be fine and I'll never see him again. He would tell me how special I was.
0: Welcome to How My Parents Raised Me. I'm Dawn Chitty. When we are born, we arrive here as pure and perfect souls and the direction our life takes from that moment is deeply connected to what our parents bring to our lives. And what our parents bring to our lives is deeply connected to what their parents brought to their lives. And that's the cycle of families. I have always craved connection with real and raw stories to understand what makes you, you. What makes you the absolutely unique human that you are. Stories are medicine for the soul. They can connect us And they can change the world. And so in this podcast, I'm listening to beautiful souls sharing their story. What happened to them, how they got through and how they have healed and thrived despite everything to arrive right here in this moment. Content warning, if you are triggered by the themes of this podcast, please seek a helpline in your city. Friend, If you suffer from anxiety and are sick of all the ways it's taking over your life, please take a look at Panic Away. For over 10 years now, Panic Away has been showing people how to break anxious patterns and get their old, carefree self back. The person they were before anxiety ruled their life. Panic Away shows you how to break the anxiety loop. And it gives your nervous system a chance to relax. It's totally drug free and highly successful, and it helps people with all levels of anxiety. Panic Away comes with a full money back guarantee, so you really have nothing to lose and everything to gain. It's time to take back control of your life, your happiness, and your freedom. A life free of anxiety is like living an entirely different life. Click the link in the show notes for access to Panic Away. Hey, my beautiful friends, welcome back. I am super excited to announce the launch of my new mental health blog. It's called Heal. Each week, I'll be drilling down into all of the most important mental health topics that we speak about here on the podcast. It will be taking a deeper dive into answering the bigger question, how can I heal from childhood trauma? This week, I'm giving you 21 ways to spot a narcissist and 20 incredible books that you must read on your healing journey. The web address to heal is howmyparentsraisedme.com and you can find the link in the show notes. Please go ahead and check it out, sign up for my weekly newsletter, leave a comment and support this healing community. My guest this week is Nathan Spiteri and Nathan is such an incredible soul. When Nathan was eight years old, his life changed forever. He was just a happy kid from a good family, but an event at his local swimming pool on a hot summer's afternoon, just like any other, changed Nathan's life forever. He was attacked by a pedophile, and that one sickening act turned into long-term and ongoing Manipulation, brainwashing, and eventually Stockholm Syndrome that lasted for five years. Nathan's eight year old self believed everything that he was told by this man, and Nathan became very detached from his family and friends, very quiet and solitary, and more and more attached to his abuser. And of course, Nathan never told a single soul about what was going on for years. He kept everything deep inside as his life spiralled out of control and eventually into drugs and alcohol and other destructive behaviours throughout his 20s and 30s. Nathan has written his life story in a book called Toy Cars. I've been reading Nathan's story over the break and you know... We hear from people like Nathan who tell us their stories and then they tell us how they're healing and living a great life. When you read the book, you get a real insight into the years and years of struggle, the years and years of desperation. Nathan shares his story because he wants you to know what's actually going on because realistically what happened to Nathan is every child and every parent's worst nightmare. And the best way that we can protect our kids is to be educated by Nathan and other survivors so that we can have an understanding of what happens to little children. There is a link in the show notes to Nathan's book, Toy Cars. Please click on this link to purchase your copy. It's a very important book. The statistics for child abuse are terrifying and Nathan has been working and healing for years to get himself to a place where he can use his story to educate and inform and bring about change. Because this is not just Nathan's story. This is the story of so many, many men and women whose lives have forever been changed by one deeply depraved abuser. This is a trigger warning that this chat may trigger some listeners. So please, take care if you are triggered by themes of sexual abuse please join me now for Nathan's story Nathan welcome to the podcast i'm so looking forward to connecting with you today your story is gut-wrenching and terrifying and like a million emotions i feel are quite indescribable because it is literally every child and every parent's worst nightmare can we just go back to a time before you were eight years old, before your life changed? Would yeah. you, What would you say childhood was like for you?
2: Sure. Thank you for having me, by the way. It, it's lovely to be on here with you and talking with you. Before I was eight years old, you know, I grew up in a little town just outside of Canberra, which is the capital of Australia for, for the American audience. The town is called Queanbeyan, And I had a a normal childhood, so to speak. I, you know, I lived in a cul-de-sac, so we would always be out in the cul-de-sac playing with the neighbors and the kids in the neighborhood. You know, our parents would send us out as kids in the summer holidays and and don't come home until it's nighttime until, you know, dinner time. So I had a a normal childhood. My parents are from Malta, tiny Island Malta in the middle of the Mediterranean, just under Italy there. So Six months before it happened, I went on my first European trip to Malta in London and we were there for about three months. And it was the most amazing time. I, I remember it. And I speak to my sister about it quite a lot. And, you know, we often say, I wish we could go back to that time because it was just every kid's dream to be, you know, in Malta, just swimming every day and playing with cousins. And so, yeah, I had a, I had a normal childhood. There was nothing wrong. And, and I guess I was, I was a little on the quiet side. I was probably more of an introvert than an extrovert even before the incident, but I was always out playing with kids and my, my, I had an older sister and a younger brother at this time. And then I had a, another brother was born when I was about 10, 11 years old. So I, you know, I, I, yeah, a normal Australian playing cricket, playing soccer and football in the cul-de-sac and yeah. yeah yeah
0: yes beautiful and what about your relationship with your mum and dad what was that like
2: from what I remember it was it was fine we had a good relationship my parents are the sweetest people in the world they're both alive still together but yeah they were the sweetest people and we wanted for nothing as kids we all got on well I got on well with my brother and sister were, we're one happy little family unit we we yeah you know European parents so you know mum always made sure we had dinner on the table and 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 we you know ate our breakfast that would make sure we we do our beds in the morning when we wake up so mum was tough dad was a softie but you know nothing crazy or nothing out of the ordinary she was just you know just she she made sure we had manners and made sure we we looked decent and cleaned up after ourselves so yeah I had a great relationship with my parents and, and my family
0: Yeah. And so at the age of eight, your life changed, but that day would have started off like any other day. Can you take us through what happened?
2: Yeah. So it would have been, it was school holidays. It was summertime just after January or just after Christmas, sorry, in January. And growing up in a small town during the summer holidays, literally the whole town would go to the public pool and we'd all swim. We'd all hang out. We all knew each other. Me and my sister rode our bikes down. We'd done it a thousand times before. So we went to the pool to hang out with friends, normal day, middle of the afternoon, my sister said she was leaving to go home or to go and hang out with some of her other girlfriends. And I'm like, that's fine. You know, I've ridden my bike down here before on my own. I can do it again when I go home. I can ride home on my own. So I think the pool, if I remember, I I don't, but I think the pool closed probably at about six o'clock, 6 p.m. Most of 99% of the people had left. I, I just stayed to the end for some reason. I walked into the change rooms. I was followed in there by a man, followed me into the, into the showers and raped me in the shower, kind of just grabbed me and shoved my head against the wall and, and, and raped me in the shower. First thing he said to me was that if I tell anyone, he'll kill me and kill my family. So as an eight-year-old, I guess, growing up in the 80s and the mid-80s, where we didn't have our mobile phones we didn't have the internet we didn't have access to you know the hotlines and the organizations that we did today and being a simple little kid I took that as gospel and I believed it and this relationship with this man went on for about five years started out very rough and violent at his house he would you know shove me against the wall choke me out he would make me pee my pants because I was so scared and then he would you know abuse me on the couch rape me on the couch and even from the very first day at the pool the the grooming and the manipulation the lies started straight away telling me that this is what my parents wanted that my parents hate me that he loves me that I love him he told me that I picked him up at the pool I was staring at him at the pool if I say anything I'll go to jail and he'll be fine and I'll never see him again he would tell me how special I was so it started from the very beginning and it just kind of accumulated just built and built from there so very rough which went into a stockholm syndrome type relationship where i i thought i felt love for this man stockholm syndrome is when you feel love for your abuser or for your captor or or in that kind of situation so i felt love for this man again through his grooming through his manipulation through his lies and you know, it it got to the point where, like I said, in the beginning, it was very rough and violent. He would choke me out, shove me against the wall, beat me about the head, rape me on the couch to when he would then offer me food, give me a packet of chips, give me some cordial or some, you know, some soft drink or, or water, and then put his arm around me and take me into the bedroom. And that was his, his, I guess, showing affection and showing love. So that went on for five years From there, he just abandoned me. He disappeared out of my life. And I say he abandoned me because at that time, I had pushed my family completely away. I wanted nothing to do with them. I wanted to be with this man. I thought I loved this man. He told me how special I was. He was giving me gifts. And I had completely disassociated myself with my parents, my brother and sister, my friends, even though they were there and I was still living with them and hanging out with them. I did it and I said what I had to say and I acted. Out of, necessity, out of necessity, but I just wanted to be with this man to the point where at eight years old, nine, 10, 11, 12, I would ride my bike to his house and wait for him outside knowing all too well what was going to happen to me, but I needed it and I wanted it and I wanted to see him and I wanted to be with him. So he abandoned me at 12 years old, just before my 13th birthday. It was two years. I questioned who I was, what I was, where I belonged in the world, am I gay? Am I straight? He told me how special I was. Is this happening to all the other boys? I always had an internal monologue. I always had something going on in my head, with 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 my thoughts toward him and about him and about myself, about my family. So my my brain was always ticking over, and and it still still kind of does. So I always you know questioned who I was, what I was, where I belonged, gay, straight. What do I do? Who do I belong with? I don't want to be with my family. I just want to be with this man. From 15 years old. So I'm not sure if you know Canberra or Queman. You got Canberra, you got Queaman, and you got Fishwick, which is where you buy all the fireworks, which is where all the all the brothels were. So there are a lot of sex clubs, a lot of brothels, a lot of gay cruise lounges in 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 Fishwick, which is an industrial industrial suburb. So at 15 years old, I would ride my bike to this suburb and sneak into these gay cruise lounges and these gay clubs and and again let these men abuse me, let these men rape me. And then I would turn around and, and beat them up, bash them, rob them, do what I had to do to them. And it was my, my way of getting my power back. My way of feeling alive is my fuck you to the world. And that went on for 10, 15 years. I, I remember it about just after he abandoned me or he left me 12, 13 years old, I would start stealing my dad's cigarettes. My dad used to smoke back then. So I'd start stealing my dad's cigarettes steal his beer and his his, his 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 scotch, he used to drink his scotch and his whiskey and I would sneak him, I'd steal him and take him to the park and just drink and get drunk as a young kid and, and that was my way of, of forgetting about it, of numbing myself and numbing the pain. So that started my addiction and my journey into alcoholism and into drugs and into sex and into violence. Again, yeah, that went on for about 15 years, 20 years. I, I from Canberra, moved to Sydney hoping to get away from that life in Canberra. I was living in Sydney and Potts Point then in Kings cross. So I was, I was deep in it. I was a personal trainer and just got, got back into that life and, you know, smoking crack and, and just in a bad place and, you know, cocaine and, and speed acid, all of it, ecstasy. From there, I, I was doing some modeling and acting. I got invited to come to New York to study. So I came to New York, studied at HB Studio in the West Village. Again, hoping to get away from my past, to start a new life, to get about Australia, I can start a new life here in America. But, you know, you've been to New York, you know what New York is like. You can get what you want, when you want. Everything's readily available for half the price of anywhere else. So I fell back into it and fell back into it into a bad bad way. To the You know, I was shooting heroin. I was lots of drugs, lots of sex, lots of violence, try killing myself, the ideations every day. And then after three, four years or about probably about four years in New York, I, you know, hit my rock bottom. I was in a bad place. It was winter time just after my birthday. All my friends were abandoning me. I was on my own, severely depressed. And I I said to my best friend who was, who was done with me, I said, I need to talk to you. We, we need to talk. We need to get together. So we met at a cafe in the West Village. And she was sitting there. She was waiting for me. I walked in. And mid-afternoon, freezing cold, whole cafe was full of people. I went in, grabbed a cup of tea, sat down with her, started crying. And still couldn't couldn't talk to her about it. Couldn't couldn't express how I felt and what, what I was going through. And she was like, Nathan, I'm done with you. I can't do this with you anymore. I'm out she's got up to Lee. So I grabbed her and I just yelled out, I was abused. I was raped as a kid. So after 25 years of, of silent suffering, after 25 years of never saying a word to this about of saying a word about this to anyone, I finally spoke my truth. I finally let it out. She sat back down and I, I told her about the drugs and, and about the abuse. I didn't go into it all. I couldn't, I wasn't ready to talk about the sex and the violence with men and, and where I'd gotten to. But then she helped me find therapy, helped me find a therapist. So I started therapy, then group therapy, rehab, AA, narcotic Sex Anonymous. And it's been a 12-year journey of recovery, learning about myself, who I am, what I went through, my relationship with this man, with my parents, with my my brothers and, and, and my sisters. And now, I guess my journey has, has evolved into now, I just had my memoir released and, and it's about talking about and, and ending the stigma and the narrative that surrounds male and child sexual abuse, because it's still such a taboo subject and no one wants to talk about it. So for me, it's about talking about it, educating the world, saving lives, You know, being a voice for the voiceless, for the ones who, who don't have a voice, who will never find peace, who will not be able to get closure. So if I can do that, if I can facilitate that, if I can help these people find some peace in their life and get some closure, then then that's what it's about for me now. Doing a lot of speaking engagements. I just did a TED Talk. My book and my story has been turned into a movie. So there's there's a lot of things going on as a result of, of, of my past. But for me, it's about changing the world, being a better person, giving back, and, and saving lives. So that's that's kind of me in a nutshell. <laughs> wow,
0: wow, wow, wow! And so that's a lot to process because what you you spoke about was this initial attack, and then you you all of a sudden you've gone on and and you're having this sort of constant relationship with this this man. I mean, how does that actually happen? Like you're attacked by somebody you decide at eight years old, I'm never going to tell anybody this story. And what actually happens then that that you, you get drawn into, you know, actually think, being with this person?
2: I think what people don't understand is the power of the lies and the manipulation and the grooming and him just the constant, as an eight-year-old kid or as a kid any age, just having someone constantly tell you your parents hate you i love you they think you're a liar they're not going to believe you you want to be with me i'm the only one who's going to take care of you you know just the constant lies like that and growing up in a small town and i spoke you know i did some research and i spoke to my my best friends about this when i was writing the book and you know growing up in this small town going to school we would catch a bus to the bus interchange and from the bus interchange we would have to catch another bus to school so in the afternoons, we, you know, catch the bus from school back to the bus interchange. This man would come to the bus interchange, just put his arm around me and walk walk away with me. And my friends thought he was a family member. He was my uncle. He was my dad. They didn't know because it was so casual and there was no fighting. There was no help me, help me. There was none of that, that I just walked with him. So that's how it kind of developed and, and, and started from there. He knew where to find me. He knew where I would be. And then from there, I would ride my bike to his house to see him because I wanted to see him because I wanted to be with him. But again, it was all through the grooming, through the manipulation, through the lies, through the, the constant, you picked me up. You're going to go to jail if you see anyone. You'll never see me again. I love you. You know it, It's such a powerful tool. And that's why whether you're eight years old, whether you're 40 years old, 20 years old, any age... Physical abuse or, or, or yeah, domestic violence, physical abuse, mental abuse, you know, sexual abuse, whatever it is. The emotional and the mental is worse than the physical, because I can beat you up, let's say, but your bruises are going to heal. But it's the mental and the emotional that that kill you, that get stuck in your head, and it, that's that's what it was for me. It was a, it was the mental, it was the emotional, and and it stuck with me, and I believed it, and I suppressed it. I didn't tell a soul to the point where I thought I loved this man. I thought I wanted to be with this man. I thought I was special because he told me how special I was. I was a special young boy, so why would I always look at my friends and think, well, are they special, are they special, or is it just me? Does this happen to every young boy? And that's kind of where it developed and where it started and where it evolved or how it evolved.
0: So the first time that he turned up after the initial attack, what do you feel is it is it fear?
2: it's fear it, it it's fear, but there was there was intrigue as well there was I wanted to know more. I wanted to know who he was. I wanted to kind of go with him as scared as I was, and there was a lot of fear and 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 nervousness and and scared. but I went with him because again I still I was scared that he would kill me if I didn't. I was scared that he would kill my family if I didn't so i I went with him out of necessity,
0: yeah
2: as as much as out of curiosity. But it was more out of necessity. if If I never saw him again, fantastic, I would have been fine. But because he was there, he showed up. I went. And then it just the grooming manipulation that the violence had just progressed and and got worse and worse, and he he kind of sucked me in,
0: yeah. And do you know now why he would have chosen you particularly? Was, was it something about your personality or?
2: Maybe he saw that I was a bit on the quiet side. Maybe he saw that I, I, I don't know. Maybe he'd been in the pool a few times and he, you know, he'd been looking for a while or scoping out his next victim. I was a cute little kid. I, I, I don't know. I don't know why me. And that's why I would love to sit with him and ask him why me. The man is dead now. But if I had the opportunity, I would sit with him and ask why me asked if it happened to him. But they say, you know, once they abuse one kid, they always abuse five, 10, 15, 20 kids. There's always more than one. So why me? I do not know. I will never know that question or the answer to that question. Sorry. But I think he probably, yeah, he did see me at the pool a few times before because we were down there almost every day in the summer during the holidays So I'm sure he checked me out and he saw that I was a, sometimes a bit of a loner or I'd be on my own or with friends, but I was never the leader of the pack. I was a quieter kid. I was a softer kid and I was an easy target, I guess, because of that, because I was a quieter and a softer kid, I wasn't the the strong kid. But once it happened, I had to turn into a strong kid. I had to, yeah, my childhood kind of ended then and I had to grow up in order to survive. Cause if I didn't, I I would, I'd be dead. So that's kind of, yeah, that's, that's a really good question. I don't know if anyone's ever asked me, why do I think it was me? I, and I think it was because I was acquired, a quieter, smaller skinny kid. And I looked like a young boy. And, and a lot of people say the reason why he abandoned you, the reason why he disappeared out of your life was because you were turning into a man, you were starting to grow hair. You weren't this young little boy anymore. So yeah maybe when he saw me i was that young little boy that he 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 wanted he liked he was into yeah
0: yeah interesting and is there a feeling of shame at that age
2: of course shame depression and the shame came
0: about and shame
2: isn't something obviously none of us are born with shame none of us are yeah. born with any of that it's it's put on us by our abuser they're putting their shame onto us so there was shame and it was through Again, through the grooming, manipulation and all that stuff, but it was through the imposter syndrome. It was through the self-sabotage. I don't deserve love. I don't deserve happiness. I don't deserve joy in my life. I don't deserve any good things in my life. And the shame started at eight years old, but continued through to 32 years old when I first came out about it. So I think the shame, the imposter syndrome, the self-sabotage, it all came about through Him putting his shame onto me, and just telling me that this is what I wanted, telling me that I needed this, that that no one's going to believe me, that everyone thinks I'm a liar, that everyone hates me, and I believed it, and I just thought, all right, well, I this is me, this is all my fault, telling me it was all my fault. That was a big one. Sorry, I forgot to mention that. Telling me that it was all my fault, and that this is what I wanted. So that the shame was a big part of that. Well, that's where the shame, yeah, definitely started from from that young age and it just progressed. It got worse, depression. It, it just built and built and built until, yeah, until it destroyed yeah.
0: me. It's interesting, isn't it? Because we we don't see eight-year-olds as having a lot of dimension. We just think they're eight years old they're and, and you're talking about shame. There's a great deal of empathy there because you don't want your family to get hurt you you're trying to protect them really aren't you there's so much going on for that little eight-year-old boy how were you actually coping in the rest of your life was it showing were people were your parents anybody noticing that there was something parents, going on
2: I spoke to my parents about that in writing a book and in and during therapy my therapy asked my therapist asked me to ask my parents about that they just thought I was a quiet little kid who just wanted to be on my own and sit in my room and play with my toy cars and and not want to go outside and play with the kids anymore. I I changed or I evolved into this quiet kid, you know. And I put on an act. I, I pretended to be happy and 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 I was a great little actor. But as a kid, I did what I had to do to to make them believe or to make them feel that everything was okay. I, you know, throughout the time, I I still had a good relationship with them, but I just pushed them away and I didn't trust them. I didn't, you know, I didn't want to be with them. I didn't communicate. There was no intimacy with my family. You know, there was no kissing and cuddles and good night and any of that stuff with my parents. So I I think I, yeah, I just did what I had to do in order to survive. And you talk about that as an eight-year-old kid. And obviously eight-year-old kids today are a lot more developed than I think when we were kids just because of internet and mobile phones and laptops and playing games and stuff. But even back then as an eight year old kid, you know, you know what you're doing, you know, as much as your brain's not fully developed, you you, you know what you have to do to survive, so to speak. Mm. And I, I, I did, I, you know, I had a good family. I knew right from wrong. And as much as I knew this was wrong, I thought it was right as well. As mm. much as I hated him, I still wanted to be with him as much as as it hurt. I hated it, it as the most disgusting thing in the world and it, it killed me. But I there was enjoyment in it as well. It's 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 complex. It's tough. It's 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 hard. It's but hard. yeah, it's yeah. And you know, I've done the years of therapy and I'm still learning about myself today and I, I I understand who I am. I know who I am. I understand my relationship with this man. I understand my relationship with my family, with my parents, brothers and sisters, lovers, friends. And for me now, like I said, it's about educating the world on these matters. So I've done the work. I've, I've come to terms with what happened to me. And I, you know, and I always say this, what happened to me happened for a reason. And the reason why it happened to me is to tell my stories, to educate the world is to save lives. And I'm doing my best to do that. So, you know, it's, it's, it's been a journey and it's the healing journey never ends. It's an everyday thing. It's a, it's a, an everyday, you know, learning, I, I learn something new every day. I evolve every day. I, I educate myself. I grow every day. And it's about sitting with it and sitting in it and being a part of that, when that stuff hits you. And when, and I've gone off on, a, on a bit of a tangent here, but you know, when these, thoughts hit me and a depression hits me, it's not about just throwing it away and letting go of it and getting rid of it. For me, part of my healing journey is sitting in it, seeing where it hits me on my body and then learning to understand how it makes me feel and what it does to me. And then moving forward with that, learning from it, evolving with it, growing with it. Because if I throw it away, it's just going to come back twice as hard next time. It's just going to build and build and build from within until I lose my shit. So, you know, sitting in it, being a part of it, breathing through it, breathing is an important, important thing for me is just because breathing grounds you, you know, if you're having a panic attack or or an anxiety attack or depression and you start breathing really heavy and fast, you get your breath back. If you sit in it and and, and get your breath back, you know, breathing, it, 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 it keeps us strong. It keeps us safe. It keeps us calm. So breathing is a big, important thing for me in, in learning about my past and and learning about these these things that hit me, the the triggers, the whatever it is that's coming into me.
0: Yeah, I'm interested in the Stockholm syndrome, and I mean it is pure manipulation, isn't it? And and yeah. I think when with all the stories that I hear it is the manipulative and the narcissistic and the sociopathic people that are in somebody's life that really change it's just so deeply damaging because you don't know what's real and you don't know what's not real you know and that's the the hardest part about it but I'm interested in you said that when this relationship first started that this guy wasn't even like you think if you were going to try and manipulate a child you'd be giving it lollies and and trying to make it a fun thing but you're saying it didn't start off like that at all it was still very it was fear-based. Still
2: very, very fear-based and then it turned into the the fun and the lollies and the drinks and you know arm around me and you know a cup of of ice cream or whatever it was. And I I, obviously for your your listeners, Stockholm syndrome is when you feel love for your abuser or for your captor or or that situation. So yeah, it was was very fear-based. And again, it was all the Stockholm syndrome. Again, it's all due to the manipulation and the lies and the grooming. And him just paying a little extra attention to me, giving me a little more love and care, putting his arm around me finally speaking to me and having conversations with me, wanting to know about me at school and and my friends and, and stuff like that. And at first it was very fear-based. It was very strong and it was very harsh and it was very violent. And then it, yeah, it evolved from there. So it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a powerful thing. And that's why the emotional side of this is a lot worse than the physical physically. I'm fine. Physically I've, I've healed but the emotional side is still what what plays with me and and with the depression and and with the thoughts and with the triggers sometimes if i hear a song or a smell or a food or or whatever the situation is so they'll always be there it's about being able to handle it now and and understanding it but yeah the 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 stockholm syndrome is it's it's a real thing it's a powerful thing and it it's something that's I guess I've I've lived firsthand, and and I've, I I genuinely thought I loved this man, and genuinely thought I wanted to be with this man, and genuinely thought that my friend, my my family, and my brothers and sisters all hate me, and he was the only one who had love for me, and he was the only one that I loved, and the only one I wanted to be with. So, yeah, that again, that like you said, the the narcissistic, the grooming, the manipulation, it was just it was a power, it was a power trip for him. It was all about power, and. You know, he exerted his power over this young eight-year-old kid and, and, and got, the, got the best of me.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And at some point, you told your parents and your family about what had happened. Can you tell us how that came about?
2: That was, I think it was around a little after six months after going into therapy. And, and I remember sitting with my, my, my therapist and, you know, we we're coming up with a plan of how to tell my family. And it was going to be over the phone either because I were in Australia or I was in New York. It was either going to be over the phone or I wait until I go home for Christmas or something and tell them then. But my parents came to visit me with my youngest brother. So they came to New York and my brother had friends. So he went out with my, he went out with his friends and I took, took my parents to dinner. We were just sitting outside at a quiet little restaurants. And I'm like, I need to tell you something. There's something I need to tell you. And I think mom being mom, and I'm sure you could understand this. The first thing she said was you got a girl pregnant. I'm like, no, you're in trouble with the police. You owe someone money. You're, you, you know, you're on drugs <laughs> or this, you know, just the things that mums think about, and I'm like, no, 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 please just, just shut up and listen. Just, I need to tell you something. And I said, I was abused as a kid. And she goes, no, you weren't, you know, we didn't abuse you. We didn't, you know, we were, we were good parents. And I'm like, you were good parents. You're great parents but I was raped at the, at the pool and you know, it went on for five years and blah, blah, blah. And obviously mum wanted to know the who, the what, the when, the where, you know, all of those. And it's, it's fascinating. Cause the first thing she said to me is exactly the first thing my sister said to me and what they both said was, wow, that explains everything about you. Now we understand. Now we know why you were the kid you that you were. Now we understand that the severe depression as a child, we understand why you're alone. We understand the alcohol and the drugs and where you were going. And it's, you know, like I said, my mum was a disciplinarian. My mum was a tough one. My dad was a softie. And it was the first time ever. And it it, it freaked me out so much where the roles were reversed. So I told him and Mum just got up and wanted to give me the biggest hug of, of her life and just, crying and just wanted to hold me and take care of me and dad for the first time and my dad is a, you know a beautiful soft old man it was the first time I'd ever seen my dad get angry like really fucking angry and my dad was who is he I'm gonna fucking kill him and you know blah 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 you know very protective and what a dad would do and it just freaked me out and I didn't know how to handle it like I had to get out of my Mum's hug I ha- I had to move away from it and I'm like, dad, it's it's okay. You don't need to do that. I'm telling you just so you understand who I am. I don't blame you. And I don't blame my parents at all. Like I said, my parents were the sweetest people in the world. I don't blame them. I just need them to understand who I was and why I was the person that I was. For a long time, I didn't want to tell them. But for me to move forward with my life and my healing journey, I needed to tell them. And now my relationship with them is great. It's you know we've come back together with my brothers and sisters as well. I I've let them in. I've you know we communicate. It's it's great. Whereas before before I told them it it was almost non-existent. Yeah, my sister and my and my mom said the exact same thing. Now that explains everything about you. My my youngest brother, who was probably 18, 19 at the time, he, he's quite cute. He just comes up and goes do you want a hug or can I give you a hug or something? <laughs> and I'm like, no, it's it's a, Or maybe we, it, we did hug. I can't remember. But it was just really, he didn't know what to say or what to do. And then my other brother in Australia just, you know, told me he loved me and he's here for me. If there's anything I can do, blah, blah, blah. And obviously he wanted to know who he was and he, him and his mates were all going to go and kill him and all that stuff. But yeah, telling my parents and telling my family was, was a big part of the healing journey in order for me to move forward and, and to find peace. Yeah, so that's, that's how I first told him.
1: When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door.
0: It's surprisingly affordable too. connect with a credentialed therapist by phone,
1: video or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10 percent on your first month. That's BetterHelp. H.E.L.P.
0: Yeah, I'm I mean, even though obviously you've said it's nothing to do with them and and all the rest of it, then they must there must be a lot of guilt there for them as well.
2: Actually, yeah, I didn't go into that. They, so I told them, and then we didn't speak about it for about six months, because I think they needed to go away back to Australia and process it and ask themselves the questions they had to ask themselves. Then we ended up speaking about it. But you know, whenever they call, they just ask how I was, how I'm feeling, are you depressed, are you still in therapy? It wasn't really about the abuse itself or or. And I'm sure, like you said, there was a lot of guilt there and there's a lot of blame there. And I think that's understandable and that any parent would feel that. But I don't have any guilt or or blame or anger toward them. Yes, they probably should have seen it or they should have asked questions or they should have done more. But I was a quiet little kid who just wanted to be on my own and play with my cars and sit in my room and watch TV. And
0: yeah,
2: yeah. yeah.
0: And, and I don't think there was as much awareness back then. I mean, there's so much awareness now around depression and and all of that stuff. We're we're getting so well educated on that. But I think even when you're a parent and something is happening with your own kids, often you just don't see that stuff. It's just you not don't. as obvious. Yeah. Like sometimes you can see other people's kids, but you can't see it in your own. It's just yeah. and I think
2: I think you know being Maltese, old school European. That shit doesn't happen in our family. Depression doesn't happen in our family. Or if it does, let's just pretend and turn a blind eye and pretend it's it's not there. I think that's kind of how it was as well. Yeah, so, you know, it was an educational thing for them. They just didn't get it. They didn't know it. But, you know, they're very loving and supportive now of everything I'm doing and 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 it's it's funny. My mum my mum always says you know, they'll support me through anything now with what I'm doing and on this journey and, the sp- and you're speaking about this stuff. They're just, you know, as long as you're happy, that's, that's, that's what they say. As long as you're happy, as long as you're okay. And as long as you're good mentally, that's all that matters. Uh, so they they're, they're, they're great now. And it's, but you know, it's, I couldn't imagine what they were thinking and what they went through. I remember the first day when I very first told them, we went back home. And this breaks my heart. We went back home and they were sleeping in my bedroom and they went to bedroom, closed the door. I was sleeping on the couch and I just heard my mum cry. So I know it fucking, I know it affected them and I know it got her, you know, it affected dad as well, but they just didn't know how to communicate that. They didn't know how to talk about it. They didn't know how to express what they were going through. And we've spoken, obviously we've spoken about it since, but you know, still it's, it's, We've spoken about it, but we my mum learnt about it all through reading my book. Right. Reading the memoir. And even 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 when she read the memoir, she didn't have questions about him, about the rape, the abuse and the manipulation or grooming or any of that stuff. She only had questions about the stupid things that I'd done as as a result. You know, the right. stupid games and drugs and whatnot and sex and all of that stuff. It wasn't about the actual abuse itself. So I still don't know if she's ready to talk about it or, or able to ask questions. It was just the secondary questions surrounding mm. it. It wasn't. It wasn't the yeah.
0: So and it's. I, it's, I it, do think that's from that generation, though, isn't it? Like, and generations before. I mean, they just didn't talk about stuff. They don't ever talk about the nitty-gritty of stuff and it's just passed down to them and so I mean no parent believes that this is actually something that's happening to their child Absolutely. Like, I don't know what the statistics are I know the statistics for sexual abuse are huge but the statistics for somebody that you don't know getting and and having this sort of attack it must be quite tiny And I'm just thinking it it is every parent's worst nightmare. And we're living in a world now where we are so overprotective of our kids. We wouldn't let an eight year old take a bike and ride off to the pool and spend the day and not know where they were. We just don't do that now. And the reason we don't do that now is because of stories like this. You know, absolutely. We're all terrified of that person. But when I've spoken to people, in this area they say that this is a very small percentage like if you're going to be sexually abused it's usually by somebody you know
2: it's usually someone in the family the the statistics for male are one in six men have been sexually abused one in two women and it's one in six statistically and that's the men who have come forward so they say it's really about one in four to one in five because think about the thousands and thousands and thousands of males who will never come forward about their sexual abuse because of toxic masculinity, because of shame, because of work, because of whatever they're, whatever they they're into, their, their socioeconomic, their religion, their, their, whatever it is, their work situation, their life situation. So they're saying it is more one in four to one in five men, but, and I've had, I had a big article come out about me in 2018 in the camera times and the Sydney morning Herald. I had, Hundreds of men back then reach out to me saying, "You are the very first person I've told." You have given me the courage now to tell my story. And since the memoirs come out, it's it's thousands of people have, or close to a thousand people have probably men and women have reached out to me from all over the world saying, "You are the very first person I've told." I've had women from the Middle East reach out to me and tell me I'm the very first person they have told, and I've helped these women get some get therapy or online therapy. And these women have said to me, we can't talk about this in our town or in our country or in our city. One of the ladies said another woman from her town came out about being raped, being abused. Her husband killed her because she brought shame on the family and he got away with it because that's the way it is in the Middle Mm -hmm. East. That's just how it is. So I've had, wow, I can't tell you the number of men and boys from India who have reached out to me. It is ridiculous number of boys from India, number of men from India who have said, we are not allowed to talk about this. We cannot talk about this in our country. And I'm the very first person they've told it. It's a, it doesn't discriminate. It's a global thing. Black, white, Muslim, Catholic, you know, whatever religion, whatever color you are, whatever country you are, it happens. And it's an epidemic. It's a, it's a global epidemic. You know, 79% of global suicides are male and over 70% of those 79% of males, over 70% of these males who commit suicide are related to unresolved trauma. So imagine if these men came out and spoke about this, the trickle down effect it would have because these men who never get help, never speak about it, become alcoholics, become drug addicts, become violent, beat up their wives, beat up whatever. Go and I'm gun massacre, go and do whatever. So, if these people are getting help up the top, it's a trickle down effect where it's just going to change society. So, we need to start having the conversation. We need to start educating ourselves as human beings, as adults, and we need to start educating our children. But in order to educate our children, we first need to educate ourselves because I've done a lot of speaking engagements. And in these speaking engagements, I say, we need to educate our kids. We need to tell our kids that their penis is called a penis and their vagina has been called a vagina. It belongs to them. It doesn't belong to anyone else. We don't make up nicknames. We don't play with them. We don't, you know, it's theirs. It belongs to them. And if someone touches them, if someone makes them feel uncomfortable, it's okay to talk about it. You are not gonna get into trouble. You are not gonna get in trouble with the police. You're not gonna go to jail you are going to be believed, which is a big thing because a lot of these kids aren't believed. But we need to tell these kids this stuff. And it's amazing to me the amount of parents or mothers or fathers that will come up to me at the end of a talk and say, I can't have that conversation with my kid. There's no way I'm going to have that conversation with my child. But I'm like, these are your fucking children. These are your legacy. These are your life. Don't you want them to be safe and to know the measures or know what they need to do in case someone does touch them? Because, you know, I've got young nep- nephews and stuff, and they would call their penis a PP and play with it. You know, all boys do. But we need to tell them that you, you're not allowed to play with it, that it belongs to them, that if someone else plays with it, because if we make light of it, if we make jokes, and if we give it nicknames, if some random dude comes into the picture and gives it a nickname and plays with it, these young kids are going to think it's okay and it's the norm. So we need to inform these kids But in order to inform these kids, we need to first inform ourselves. We first need to, well, we need to educate ourselves. Otherwise, what's the fucking point? Why are we here? And the more we educate ourselves as adults, the more we open our ears, our hearts, our minds, and and more importantly, the more we drop the prejudice, the narrative, and the fear that surrounds male and sexual abuse. And, And let's stop turning a blind eye to it. Let's stop pretending it doesn't happen. And start having these conversations, these real conversations around mental health. And we are. We are more so. But it's it's fascinating. Since my memoirs come out, you know, I, I was with, with the PR team and we would approach the media. 90% of the media would say to me, Nathan, if you're a woman, we would talk to you today. Because you're a man, we are not going to talk about this. And that's where society's at. And that's why we need to change this. But that's why... These men are being abused and and no one wants to know about it. Toxic masculinity, you know, toxic masculinity is the outgrowth of men being groomed through TV, through society, through sports, That that vulnerability is, is weak and it's not manly and it's shameful, but it's not, you know, the more what I've learned and, and I think most men are starting to, to, to come onto this now, the more you are vulnerable the more you're able to communicate, the more you're able to talk about your fears and cry and and share the darkest secret of your life, the more masculine you are, the more of a man you are, the more of a healthy relationship you're gonna have with your partner, your wife, whatever it is. And and we just need to change that, we need to stop that. We need to understand, there was a, a recent study done that a recent study done on tears we shed as human beings not happy tears but tears from anger hatred sorrow depression there are enough toxins and poisons in these tears to kill a rat so imagine what these tears do to us as humans obviously we're much bigger than rats but imagine just the build-up of it all what it does to us as humans when we hold these tears inside and that's why when we hold all this stuff inside we don't share we don't become vulnerable we don't communicate we keep it inside and we suppress it, suppress it, suppress it, and push it down and push it down. That eventually it just builds and builds and builds and builds and builds and builds until we fucking lose our minds, blow our brains out, kill, go on a massacre. You know, in Australia, we kill our wives and our kids. There's a lot of that going on. And it's here as well. It's because these men don't understand masculinity. They don't understand how to communicate. They don't understand how to be vulnerable, how to share how they feel or, or, communicate they don't want to do therapy therapy you know men don't go to therapy men don't cry men men are strong but we need to fucking change this narrative we need to we need to change this narrative
0: (laughs) yeah oh absolutely and of course that's where especially here you know the drinking culture comes in it's the only time that men actually relax isn't it yeah uh, but they don't like i'll often say to my partner what did you guys talk about and He doesn't, they don't, I don't know what guys talk about. You know, they don't talk about the deep stuff.
2: No, No? guys talk about, they talk about girls. They talk about sport. They talk about sex. Even me with my best mates, we are more so now because they know of my story and they're becoming more vulnerable with me. But even me with my mates before I came out, it was all sex, women, sport. Yeah. that's We don't talk about, we don't talk about, Oh, I'm feeling like this and this, the other. And, and that's why we have the campaign. It's, it's, you know, it's okay not to be okay. You know, that, that saying, and, and that's amazing. Yes, it is okay not to be okay. But more importantly that, than that, it is okay to show and to share that you are not okay because yes, it's okay not to be okay. But if you're still holding it all inside and not sharing that, it's, you st- you're in that same fucking situation. Mm. So it's okay not to be okay. Absolutely. But it's also okay to talk about not being okay, to sharing that you're not okay, to being vulnerable, to, to, to crying, to, to openly communicate how you feel and what you want and what you're going through, whether it's a personal thing, whether it's with work, whether it's your, with your wife, whether it's with the family or whatever the situation is, we just need to a lot more accepting and a lot more open and and we need to believe survivors because a lot of people who have come out and i've had a lot of people reach out to me online and tell me this they've come out about their story their loved one or their family have said don't lie that didn't happen to you shut up don't say anything about it and then they suppress it even more they keep it inside even more and again it just builds and builds and builds until they explode so yeah
0: yes well it's the shame of the family isn't it people people don't want that person putting shame on their family like you talked about it in India but it's it's actually the shame is real for everybody and it's really it's there's so much there's so much to change it's like there's so much to change talking about that when this article came out about me
2: and it was a time when I can't even remember who the Australian prime minister was. Maybe it was Kevin Rudd or whoever it was. They did the big public apology to all, all children who had been abused in, 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 whether it was a Catholic church or the boy Scouts, or whatever it was. A good friend of mine was one of the, the, the senior reporters for the Canberra times. And she said, Nathan, and she knew about me. And she said, Nathan, can we please tell your story? Cause it would, it would change so much. And, you know, you're a good looking guy, you're living in New York, you're 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 an actor, you're chasing your dreams, but yes, you had this horrible thing happen to you, but look at you now, you're thriving. And I'm like, oh, okay, okay, and I am and are ah about it. So I went and told my parents. And speaking of shame, my mum said, Well, if you do this story, can it be anonymous? Do you have to put your name? Do you have to put a photo? And, you know, I spoke to to Brie, my friend, and she said, Nathan, we have to, because otherwise it's anonymous made-up story. But if we put your name, if we put your photo, it adds so much more weight to the story and it gives a story life. And I'm like, you know what? Fuck it. Yes, let's do it. So yes, my parents were really scared and worried and holy fuck, you know, old school Europeans, What you know? what's everyone going to say, especially in that little European community? What are these people going to think of us and think of our family? It's going to bring shame. But when the article came out, my parents had nothing but love or they received nothing but love from their friends, from the community, from my brothers and sisters as well. They thought, you know, there'd be some trolls or there'd be some haters online, but touch wood, there weren't and they received nothing but love. So I think in receiving that they understood that, okay, this is okay. This is okay to talk about it and we need to talk about it. So then they, they opened up and they relaxed a little bit more, but it was, you know, initially there was a lot of shame there. There was a lot of, oh my God, you can't do this. You can't put your name out there. You can't associate yourself with this because then we're going to be associated and what's everyone going to think about us? But when they received love from all their friends, then then they were okay with it.
0: Yeah, and I think it it so depends on your experience, doesn't it? Because I I've heard that a lot where people have opened up and told their story and they have just received, you know, so much more connection with other people because in the end, there's all these other people around you who probably have a very similar story, you know, who are struggling with all the same things and, and who are desperate to, for somebody else to say, this is, you know, what's happened. I don't have to listen to a podcast to hear a story. I can actually speak to the 20 people that I know locally and half of them probably are struggling with all the things that I am, you know, and that's what it's all about.
2: it's, It's so fascinating. After my story came out, I had so many anonymously and and guys who I knew reach out to me and say the same thing happened to me at the pool or the same thing happened to me in Canberra or the same thing happened to me in Queanbeyan. And I'm like, Holy fuck. It wasn't just me. And and there were so many other men and boys in Canberra or in Queanbeyan where I grew up who, who they had this happen to them, whether it was the same man, whether it was other men, I don't know, but yeah. So it was, it was fascinating just how many guys it was happening to
0: mm. and who, who
2: never came out about it
0: yes and so as an adult you seem to know who this man is did you find out about him
2: it was it was, it was funny so this article came out it wasn't funny but this article came out about me he's dead now he died long before I had a chance to find out who he was or who he is so this article came out, out and mum Mum grew up in, in town in Queanbeyan and all her girlfriends who she went to school with. So the article came out, mum and her girlfriends got together, or they all read about it and they all got together and had a chat about it. And I went back to Australia for, I think it was probably Christmas or a holiday, whatever it was. And I walked into the house and mum was sitting there with three or four of her, of her best friends from when they were kids. And it was like an intervention. They sat me down and they, you know, just asked me all these questions, and and then they were talking about it amongst themselves. Because you know, obviously, when you grow up in a small town, there's always rumors, or he's a pedophile, or he's an alcoholic, or he's a drunk, or he beats his wife, or whatever the fucking situation is. So they asked me all these questions, they put two and two together, and we kind of worked out who it was through that, through my parents, or through my mum and her friends. And and I, I, real, I found out he died of early onset Alzheimer's and dementia. And everyone's like, well, that's great. Now you've got closure. Now you can move forward. Now you can, you know. But as much as I have closure, I would have loved, as, as we spoke about earlier, I would have loved to have sat with him and asked him questions. Why me? Did it happen to you? How many other guys? Or, or whatever the situation was. And then I'd take a baseball bat and I'd kill him. Or a cricket bat and I'd kill him. Not because of what he's done to me. Because with what he's done to me, I'm at peace with. Just so he couldn't do it to another child. And I think a big part of my healing journey, as much as I just said, I'd take a baseball bat and I'd kill him. A big part of my healing journey is forgiveness and forgiving myself for what was done to me and for what I did to people. But also, yes, I had to go to a certain extent to forget to forgive this man. I'm never going to forget it. And even though I forgave him, doesn't mean I, was, I don't want to kill him. So I, I had to forgive him in order to to let go of the anger and the hatred that I had in me. I hated the world. I hated him. I hated everyone around me. I didn't trust anyone. If I was going to move forward with my life, it was I was going to be able to find some peace and find some love and find some joy and just be able to love myself, I had to forgive. That was a big, big thing I learned in therapy. And just to touch on some other things that I've learned in therapy, the major, major parts was obviously the forgiveness And my therapist would always, she was a tough, tough little woman. And she would always say, Nathan, if you could go back today and speak to your eight-year-old self, what would you tell him? And I would arm and arm about it and not want to answer. And I had no idea, but she just kept on me, kept on me, kept on me until it just came to me one day in therapy. And I realized that it wasn't your fault. If I could go back and speak to the eight-year-old boy, I would tell him it wasn't your fault. Once I learned that, the weight started, you know, lifting off my shoulders like an onion, the the layers started peeling off. I was finally able to understand, like I said earlier, my relationship with this man, my relationship with my family, with friends, with lovers. And I remember in group therapy, my therapist said to us all, all right, I want you all to talk about something that you're proud of, something that you've achieved in life. And they all went first and I was last. And it's all in, it's all in a memoir. But it was my turn and halfway through everyone talking, I just started crying and I just, it just hit me and it knocked me. And as much as I'd hit my, my lowest point in life, my real lowest point in my life was in group therapy in the safe space. It wasn't when I was on drugs. It wasn't when I was depressed. It wasn't when I was getting beaten up or raped or anything like that, or, or beating someone up. I hit my rock bottom in group therapy because when it was my turn to share what I'd I'd achieved or what I'd yeah what I'd achieved or what I was happy about in my life I realized that there was absolutely nothing in my 32 years of existence there was absolutely nothing I had achieved or I was proud of in my life mm-hmm. and it just fucking knocked me it it broke me completely broke me but then one of the other guys who was in therapy with me he leaned into me and said Nathan you're here this is what you should be proud of. This is what you've achieved in your life. And it's so fucking true that showing up is what mattered most. Showing up is what matters most is is finally being able to talk about what happened to you, share your story, openly communicate, because once you do that, as hard as it is, and that, 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 that healing journey is tough and can be very hard, it just gets easier. Talking about your story, finding peace gets easier. So just, just showing up is what mattered most is, is something that's very powerful to me. And another big thing for me in finding closure for myself was my therapist in group therapy said, all right, I want you all now to write a letter to your abuser or to your traumas telling them that they do not own you anymore, that you're free from them, that that you're, you're a survivor, you're thriving, you're strong. And it did... Take me about two, three years to write this letter. It took me a long time. I didn't write it straight away because I still wasn't ready for it. I wasn't there. I still needed to learn more about myself and learn more about this man and go on this healing journey, do my therapy and, and my AA and all that type stuff. I went home. It was, it was my sister's husband died. He died of cancer when he was young. So we went home. I went home for the funeral and I sat in my bedroom when I was a kid. I found this toy car that this man gave me. That's why the book is called toy cars. I found this toy car that this man gave me. And I just sat down and wrote the, wrote the note to him telling him that he doesn't own me anymore, that I'm free from him. I'm powerful. I'm strong. I'm a fucking survivor. I'm no longer a victim, you know, all that stuff. And then I went down to the local park and near the Queen Min pool, near the pool. And I burnt the letter and I, I burnt the car. I burnt I built myself a little 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 fire and just I, I put the fire, the note in there and 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 I burnt the car and and you know do what another thing that the therapist said to us is was is to do what we want with the letter. We can burn it, we can give it to a loved one, we can take it to our grave, we can give it to our abuser, we can give it to a family member. Whatever you want to do with the letter, do what do what you want. However you're gonna find peace with that and get closure with that. And for me it was just to have a quiet moment on my own with the letter, with the car, and then just burn it and let it go and see the see the ashes just fly into space and, and and be done with it. So that was a big part of my healing journey, being able to move forward, being able to find closure, being able to educate myself and understand the situation.
0: Wow. Yeah, that's so powerful, isn't it? Even just when you said that you, what would you say to your, Eight-year-old self. eight-year-old self and just being able to say it wasn't your fault I, oh. I just you know I felt this kind of weight come off of myself just oh you know it's so amazing and then to be able to release all of that in a letter and it sounds like you found a really incredible therapist as well that's, I, got, I that's a huge key isn't it for people that's a
2: massive key and, and you know it, it took me a while to find to find her and even when I when her and I finished and I had to find another one, because my therapist passed away, I always make sure to find a therapist, and I'll ask questions and you're okay, you're allowed to ask questions. I want a therapist who has been through it, not not necessarily what I've been through, but has have but has lived a life, has had some trauma. You could be academically smart, you could be the most academically smartest fucking person in the world, but if you haven't lived it, if you haven't felt it, you don't know it. As, as much as you can read about it. So I've always wanted to be with someone who, who, who gets it and who understands it. So that is an important thing. And, and for anyone out there who is looking for a therapist, don't settle. So don't, don't settle and look for the one that you're going to connect with. Look for the one that's going to work for you. Very important. Another big important thing in my healing journey is to surround yourself with the right people the people who are going to love you, the people who are going to trust you, the people who are going to believe you, the people who are just going to sit there and listen. That's what we want is we just want someone to listen and to believe us. And I talk about this in my TED talk that three of the most important or the three of the most powerful words in the English language are I hear you and to surround yourself with someone who hears you, who fucking understands you, who's going to listen, who's going to support, who's going to love, who's going to hold who's going to be there for you and do all that stuff. Because like I said, you can tell someone and they're gonna say, that's bullshit. That didn't happen to you. Shut up, don't talk about it, just live your life. And, and I've had that. I've had people say to me, Nathan, just get on with it. That happened, You mm-hmm. you know that was 20 years ago. But what people don't understand is what happened to me, what's happened to you, what's happened to everyone out there when it relates to trauma, it's a part of me now. It's a part of my DNA. It's a part of who I am. And it's not about, like I talked about earlier, it's not about throwing it away and letting go of it. It's about moving forward with it. It's about doing the work so that you understand what it is. You understand what you went through. You're understanding your relationship with it and you're able to move forward with it. You're able to evolve with it. You're able to grow with it. Because if you let it go and just throw it away and that didn't happen, that didn't happen. I'm going to pretend it doesn't exist. It's going to come back and kick your ass twice as hard next time. So, making sure to surround yourself with the people who love you, the people who trust you, and just be kind on yourself. Take care of yourself mentally, physically, emotionally. For me, a big part of my healing journey, and again, it was in the, in the story, in the book, is going to the gym. And as much as, as I needed to be healthy physically, going to the gym kept, kept me sane or as sane as it could, mentally and emotionally. They were two very big things for me, in in my in my healing journey and even today is surrounding myself with the right people not Mm -hmm. falling back into the old crowd of the drugs and the sex and the violence and and just just be kind to yourself take care of yourself and give yourself time give yourself time because it's 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 not a quick fix
0: yeah absolutely and I feel like for you, it would have been like almost relearning who you are because you wouldn't have known really who you were. You, became, was, like, you became this person that was so manipulated. You wouldn't have really known who you were. And the-
2: As I was getting older, I was becoming the person who was manipulating people, who was grooming people. Because I had to do it in order to survive. I had to do what I had to do to survive. And I, I spoke about this a lot in therapy that my eight-year-old kid, he stopped being a kid and had to grow up to, in order to survive. So this young kid inside of me is coming out now. I'm learning who I am now. And it's, it's funny. I, I, I talk about in the book and in other situations where sometimes I – have an out-of-body experience. And I'm like, what the fuck am I doing or saying? I, I just feel like such a kid right now. And it's just this young kid in me who never survived who or who never had a chance to grow and, and to be himself and to just be a normal kid. So I'm, I'm getting into that now and I'm, I'm learning about that kid now and I'm, I'm, I'm learning more and more about him and who he was and who he is and, and what he is now. And for me, It's simple to say, but it's hard to get there. All I want in my life is peace, love, and joy. Very simple to say, but it's very hard to achieve. And I want joy because there's a big difference between happiness and joy. Happiness is me talking to you right now. Happiness is me getting a job. Happiness is me buying a car or going on a holiday. But joy is from deep within. Joy is an emotional state from within. And I've never felt joy. I've never felt real peace. I've never been at peace in my life. And I've never felt love. I've never felt real love. So for me now, that is what I want. That's what I'm achieving. And I'm getting there because I, for the first time in my life now, after these 12 years of rehab and, and and therapy and group therapy and AA, I finally know who I am as a man. I finally know who I am as a person, as an adult. And I don't care for the bullshit. I don't care for the ego anymore. I don't care for the nonsense I, I I know who I am, I know what I want, and I, I wear my heart and my sleeve and I say it. I don't have a lot of friends in my life and I don't need a lot of friends. I have, yes, a ton of acquaintances through people I've met, but I can count my best friends on, on, on one hand. And that's all I need because these are the people who love me and trust me and who will will die for me. So that's 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 what I want. Peace is is a big thing for me. I just want I just want peace because my head is Goes at a million miles an hour, and my thoughts, and you know, all that type stuff. So for me, it's just about being in a quiet place. Whether I make twenty thousand dollars a year, whether I make twenty million dollars a year, it's irrelevant. Financially, it's irrelevant because you can have all the money in the world, but you're still the loneliest person in the world. For me, it's about connection. It's about love. It's about vulnerability. It's about just masculinity, and it's just about being real, because you know, we always say we've got one life to live and live it. But someone recently told me as much as true as that is, how about you say we die once, but we live every day. So let's start living every day. Instead of just saying we've got one life, let's say we live every day, but we die once. And it's true. We need to start living every day. And that's my motto for myself is to live every day is to get out there and make a real fucking difference in this world and, and save lives and help people. and you know, I'm starting to do a lot of these talks and and podcasts. I did my TED talk. I've, like I said, the movie. You know, there's a movie in in the works. There's a lot of stuff happening, and I'm creating an online course for people who've been through this. And and what we need to realize is that trauma is all relative. It doesn't matter what you've been through, what I've been through, what the next person's been through. It's how you deal with it. You know, you could walk out in the street and trip over in a bunch of in front of a bunch of people. And it's the worst thing in the world for you. And you want to go and kill yourself because you're embarrassed in front of these people, or you can be through what I've been through, but you know, if you do the work, it's going to be okay. So trauma is all relative. It's all about how we deal with it, how we handle it, how we move through it, how we, we grow from it and how we don't just throw it away and pretend it doesn't happen. We learn from it. We, we, we build it. And that's what, that's what makes us into the people that we are. That's what turns us into evolved, educated human beings yeah as thinkers and doers and as like-minded people and as people who who want to change the world and want to talk about social issues and social justice and mental health and and abuse and you know all these things that are so important in the world let's start doing that and right. and you know it's funny the people who I've spoken to and there's not a lot of people but there are uh, you know quite a few people out there who will say Nathan I'd love to help you but what am I going to get out of this how much money am I going to make and what is this gonna make me look like? So there's still a lot of fake people out there who are just in it for themselves. And it's it's sad that society is still like that. But we are slowly changing, we are slowly evolving, we are slowly moving into decent people. But I think we still have a long way to go. We still have a lot of education that needs to be done. Uh, hopefully we get there. <laughs> yeah.
0: Hopefully. So <laughs> I was just wondering if you have any advice for parents of little kids that that would save them from being in this situation, is it just communication?
2: I think it is communication and communication at a young age, you know, when these kids start to, you know, understand words and have, you know, talk with you when they're three, four years old at a very young age, because it sometimes starts at a very young age like that. And also, which I guess is, you know, we're talking about that era, our parents' era, just be more aware. Look at the change in the kid. If your kid is an extrovert one day, then the next day he's just locked in his room and doesn't want to talk to anyone and has changed and is an introvert and he's just shy and shallow and and his whole persona has changed. Do something about that. Don't just sit there and think, oh, maybe he's just an introvert or maybe he's just, you know, he's just a quiet kid. Speak to him communicate let them know that they're not going to get in trouble let them know that they're going to be believed let them know that it's not their fault just just open your eyes and your ears and become aware
0: yeah
2: and you know and, you know even if you have to go on their phones or go on their social media because they're going to talk to their friends before they talk to you and as much as you know I, i'm not a parent so i don't know how it works you you, you could probably educate me on that kids are always going to talk to their friends before they talk to their parents. But if I think if you as a parent have that kind of relationship with your child, where they will communicate with you, they will talk with you, they will, you let them know that it's safe. It's a safe environment. I think they need to understand that they, they, they live in a safe environment and they're, they lived in a loved environment and they're going to be believed. I think that's, that's half the journey. Yeah, And then the rest is just communication and, and not getting angry and just sitting there and speaking to the child as an adult or having, you know, having that adult conversation with the kid. Don't treat them like a kid. Don't treat them like an idiot or someone who doesn't know or speak down to them because you speak down to them. They're just going to shut down. They're just going to shut off. So yeah. speak to them as a, as an equal. I don't know what advice do you have as a parent? I'm too no, well, obviously your boys are a little older now but yeah. Yeah.
0: Well no, look I I think exactly what you said it's all about communication. It's about them knowing that whatever happens you're there. You're not going to run them down, you're not going to disbelieve them that there's always an open conversation and Yes. I always say that no child goes off the rails for no reason. They just don't Kids don't go off the rails. There's always a reason. And I think we have this there's this whole mentality that teens are a nightmare. You know, you get to, you're a teenager. I mean, I was told this as a teen oh, you're a teenager now. Now you're going to start doing this, that, and the other. It's actually the other way around (laughs) because we're treating them like that, that they don't talk to us and that they hold things in and that, and then that's a downward spiral. And I've seen kids go off the rails. Who were one minute absolutely fine, and then they've just gone bang, everything's just caught up with them. You can't ignore a child for its whole life, it's going to explode at some point, you know. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So, Nathan, you've got a beautiful memoir called Toy Cars, and you've got a TED talk, which I will put up in the show notes. Do you want to mention anything else? I
2: guess the easiest way to follow what I'm doing is 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 just to follow me on Instagram and and if you want to reach out on Instagram, please do. I'll always get back to you and and have a conversation with you and and just guide you in the right direction or or help you with with finding a therapist or or answering some questions for you or, or helping you in whatever you need. So just I guess find me on Instagram and just that's where I'm posting about everything and and talking about everything. And yeah, just just watch this space because I, you know I think there's going to be a lot coming up and a lot going on, especially when the TED Talk comes out and with you know this movie and and whatnot. So a lot of exciting times.
0: Absolutely. Well, Nathan, it's such an honor to hear your story today and just to connect with you. I think everything you're doing is amazing. I love you've found this purpose because of everything that's happened to you that you're now using that in such a positive and beautiful way and just telling your story because it does mean so much to somebody that's listening, that's holding something in that they've never told anybody. It's, it's just beautiful what you're doing. Thank you so much for connecting with me today.
2: Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me on and, and let's do it again sometime. Let's do a part two. Yeah, no, it's been nice. It's been fun. Thank you.